Welcome to this issue of Journal Club for February 2023. My name is Dr. Danny Marhaba. I am joined, as usual, by Professor Peter Cameron. And today we are joined by Dr. David McCreary. The, uh, the studies we're going to talk about today will be threefold. Uh, the first uh, uh, manuscript we'll discuss will be uh, the introduction of an emergency medicine pharmacist-led sepsis alert response system in the emergency department. Um, this one's a cohort study from uh, 2023. Uh, the second study we will discuss is a uh, prospective open-blinded um, randomized controlled trial on the restriction of IV fluids in ICU patients with septic shock and whether or not it contributes a mortality benefit. And the third uh, manuscript we'll discuss is uh, also a uh, 2022 uh, study uh, titled Peripheral Vasoactive Administration in Critically Ill Children with Shock, a Single-Center Retrospective Cohort Study. We'll start with the first manuscript. Paper one. This, uh, this is the introduction of an emergency medicine pharmacist-led sepsis alert response system in the emergency department, um, uh, a cohort study. Uh, this the population here was 100, roughly 180 patients presenting to uh, a tertiary uh, emergency department with a sepsis uh, alert uh, during an emergency medicine pharmacist working hours who uh, were uh, admitted uh, to ICU. Uh, the intervention here was the sepsis alert response system in the emergency department, which includes early intervention by emergency medicine trained uh, pharmacist. The comparator was the 80 patients, sorry, the roughly 100 patients uh, who presented to Alfred uh, ED um, before the, the trial began, um, or sorry, before the implementation occurred, which was uh, the 7th of February, 2016. And the outcome was uh, a bundle of parameters, the primary of which was uh, time to administration of antibiotics. Um, uh, some mortality data was collected, um, uh, but... Uh, but that wasn't the primary focus of the study. This is an interesting trial, or an interesting study, I should say, not a trial. It comes at a time when uh, we've transitioned from the initial sepsis one in 1991 with the initial SIRS call-out criteria, um, and, and it was followed by sepsis two, which sort of solidified these SIRS criteria. Sepsis three then changed it a little bit to the QSOFA, and uh, now we have the surviving sepsis 2021 guidelines. Um, my first question goes to Professor Cameron. Prof, I see here that our call-out criteria for these sepsis uh, um, alerts is effectively the SIRS criteria with slight modification. Um, they've taken the respiratory rate of 22, uh, sorry, the respiratory rate uh, um, of, uh, of 20, and we've increased it to 22, I, I suppose, to increase our specificity. And the heart rate of 95 um, uh, comes from the SIRS criteria of 90. Once again, we've raised it a little bit to increase our specificity. Do you support or do you think uh, using these sepsis alert criteria to alert uh, junior medical staff uh, is, is sort of, I guess, evidence-based or, or a good idea to implement? Well, there's no doubt those physiological criteria are associated with poor outcomes. You know, like there's, I don't know whether there's thousands, but there's many trials. Um, that demonstrate that if the physiology is off, you will do worse. Um, the question, I guess, then is um, 
are they sensitive and specific enough to um, uh, make make them the guide guideline for um, intervention and and what level of intervention you require at each level of derangement. I think if the blood pressure is 50, then, you know, most people would sort of uh, stop drinking their cup of tea and go over and give the patient a hand. Um, you know, and then there's sort of a blood pressure of 80, a blood pressure of 90, a blood pressure of 100, a pulse rate of 120. You know, you get all these sort of... And then there's, you know, young women who normally have a blood pressure of 90 and uh, these sorts of things. So... When it's extreme, I think everyone would agree, you know, this is a call to action. When once you get to the sort of thresholds, then you're sort of playing off with, you know, sensitivity, specificity with regard to how much intervention and, and so forth. And as you know, in an ED, there's always another priority. You know, there's mm -hmm. the patient down there whose arm is broken and needs analgesia. There's the patient over there who's got a STEMI, you know. And so you, you know, you've got to prioritise your patients and your uh, shift. Um, but uh, I think there is no harm in if the, in in alerting people to the fact that physiology is abnormal. It's really what you do next that the discussion mm -hmm. uh, is where you have the discussion. Thus, my next question, Doctor McCreary. Prof Cameron's always uh, probably the most critical person in the room of his own studies. Um, <laughs> so let's start with <laughs> let's of start everybody's with... studies, but he he doesn't discriminate; <laughs> he includes himself too. Yeah. So so let's ask: um, Do you think this provides um, some evidence to show us that if our goal was to reduce time to antibiotics, that the introduction of an EM pharmacist um, seems to do that? See, there's the what the paper says and what I believe from our own practice. Um, I'll, I think there was a lot of caveats in the Stick room on the journal club day as well. <laughs> well, look, because from our own practice, I do feel like it does, and I've, I certainly see it happening when I'm in the room with a septic patient and they are at the door advising me on what I should be giving, sorting it, prescribing it, getting it ready. So I have felt the benefit anecdotally. I don't think, it, and on the day I tried to look at this, if I was the director of an emergency department that didn't have the funding for ED pharmacists and I was trying to convince us that we needed them and using this as a, a basis, I don't think this study does that because mm. we've shown, it shows that there's a benefit in the antibiotics being given, or it could just be the documentation of the antibiotics being given. Um, and it shows that that benefit might come from a sepsis call out. I don't think it necessarily mm. shows us that it comes from a pharmacist call out. And I know, and Prof can probably chime in on this, but I know there's probably reasons why they they didn't compare overnight when there was no pharmacist available to during the day. But to, it, in in my mind, that seems to be the main way that you could pick apart the presence of a pharmacist against no pharmacist when everything else, I know that nighttime's different, but I mean, in terms of sepsis callouts and all the new processes that the hospital went under at the same time, it just helps to pick that apart a little bit better. Um, because while I know the benefit of pharmacists, I don't know if this paper truly shows it. What do you think, Prof? <laughs> Uh, well, it's, you know, like forget about where it was done and that they're our dearest friends and all that sort of gear. <laughs> um, 
this uh, this paper, you know, it, it, it has uh, issues which you can drive a truck through in terms of methodology. Um, and it was an unfunded study, and it was it was what it was. But um, you know, it's a single center study. It's before and after, uh, as Dave's already mentioned. It's talking about a package of care as opposed to just pharmacist or just call out or some other intervention. So all of those things are bundled in together. Uh, the time of day, as Dave's mentioned, like. Um, Patients do better during the day when everyone's around and there's no big deal. Overnight, there's less staff, uh, everything's harder. And um, but they weren't comparing, uh, so so they they didn't actually compare like with like from that point of view. Um, and then I guess so so I guess the reality is um, it hasn't answered. Any question? Uh, what it has done is highlighted um, that there may be a signal that maybe doing a package to maybe um, alert people might make a difference. Um, so it's worth doing a proper study to demonstrate that, which would probably take the form of a stepped wedge design, which is because it would be difficult to randomise, you know, day one to day two or um, uh you know patient one to patient two because there'd be too much contamination within an individual site so uh you would do it um you would sort of introduce the package at say the alfred and then at another hospital and then at another hospital uh, in a random way and then see uh, do before and afters at each site that's probably the best way of determining whether this sort of intervention works and you might do it in a in a stage way so you might do the alert and then you might do the pharmacist and then you might do the i don't know packages of whatever it is that's involved uh in this whole package so um, convert it from a combination of a retrospective and prospective cohort study um, to a study of therapy a prospective study of therapy yes mm. um so um yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, it's it's sort of interesting. Um, uh, it highlights one hospital's experience. Um, it it doesn't prove much. Yeah, yeah, I I, I think that's uh, I think that's uh, um, the likely the, the 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 best takeaway is that it may ask further questions. It may suggest. Or signal towards the benefit of that of a bundle, which may include an EM pharmacist. So, one other thing, just in terms of the outcome measure, um, time to antibiotic in itself is a process measure that's not yeah. not that clinically meaningful, uh, mm. and there is some controversy about how much difference it makes. Um, I mean, if I had septic shock, I'd probably want to get my antibiotics earlier, mm. but. Um, but for many of these patients, um, it probably makes no difference. But if it made a difference to mortality or to time in ICU, um, I might be uh, more. Yeah. Uh, I think that's I think that's a really good point, actually, because the the limited evidence that there is for it, it's time from identification of severe sepsis rather than just all sepsis that is where the benefit is. And obviously, that some of that cohort is going to be in caught in this group but yeah it's not measured and it's not picked apart and you would need much bigger numbers to be able to measure a mortality benefit or a 
the, there is there is some evidence that the authors cite um, that uh, draws an association between time to antibiotics and sepsis and outcomes, but I feel like that's 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 um, that's there's a lot of confounders with those studies, um, and uh, and to delay to antibiotics is the same thing as delay to care or delay mm -hmm. to EM treatment or overcrowding, and all of these are are are, are confounders to it. I like that. I like that the 2021 guidelines came out and said uh, um, uh, possible sepsis um, uh, up to three hours. Um, how do you feel about sepsis three's uh, definition, though? Um, which I think I, uh, life-threatening end organ dysfunction that results from a dysregulated response to infection. I think it's a better definition. I think highlighting that it's the dysregulation as opposed to because, and this is my problem with SIRS criteria in general is that it's the normal response you're supposed to get a fever and the fever is going to make you a bit tachycardic and things like that so i think that those SIRS criteria um aren't specific enough um in that they they take an awful lot of normal response and it has blurred those lines and we really need to identify the patients who are having a dysregulation but in saying that Emergency medicine is a sensitivity specialty, not a specificity specialty. Like we we need to identify them all, and there's going to be an element of overtreat in order to guarantee us not missing the ones that really need it. Uh, when yes, there's the bigger public health concerns of antibiotic resistance and blah blah blah, but but really um, on a departmental level or a patient level, that's not a concern on the day, and it's about identifying those patients that are potentially because sicker. worse. So that's why we want. Because worst case, you give them some antibiotics and send them home. Pretty much, yeah, yeah. Uh, but that's where we 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 have to have the sensitivity dialed up. But I think, like, I, I do prefer the definition of of a dysregulation. But if you wait until you're sure that that it that it is a dysregulation, it's probably too late. So that's where it, it it's really complicated. <laughs> mm. Any last thoughts, Prof? No, I mean, I, I think it was a nice little study, but um, it's really more a pilot to work out how you might uh, prove uh, that pharmacists make a difference. Paper two. Restriction of IV fluids in ICU patients with septic shock. This was a, uh, a multi-center open-label prospective RCT of around 1,500 patients over 18 years of age admitted to ICU who had uh, suspected septic shock. And they defined suspected, suspected septic shock by uh, um, suspected or confirmed infection a lactate greater than two, ongoing vasopressors, um, and having received at least a liter of fluid in the past 24 hours. Their intervention was uh, restrictive intravenous fluids given under four um, uh, uh, conditions. One was severe hypoperfusion or shock um, with the plasma lactate more than four, um, MAP less than 50, um, uh, oliguria, and uh, and uh, um, uh, increased cap refill time. If that was present, they were allowed to receive between 250 to 500 mils. Um, the second uh, uh, condition was uh, uh, the replacement uh, of documented uh, IV fluids, um, uh, urine output or GI or any drains that were inserted. The third condition of fluid administration was to correct electrolyte derangement. And the fourth one was uh, IV fluids to ensure a daily fluid intake of one liter. Um, the comparator was standard intravenous fluid 
therapy, which was effectively unlimited IV fluids, um, uh, depending on the preferences of the treating clinician. The actual intervention, so the actual volumes that were administered, were uh, day one, um, uh, the restricted fluid group received a median of one liter, whereas the uh, the unrestricted received around 1.7. Um, uh, and on day five, the restricted IV fluid uh, group received 2.3 liters, but the unrestricted group received around 3.8. Uh, the cumulative fluid balance uh, was uh, uh, was uh, the restricted fluid group were positive 0.7 liters on day one um, compared to 1.3, and the restricted fluid group were positive 1.6 liters on day five compared to 2.4. So some differences in fluid uh, um, uh, in cumulative fluid uh, load there. The outcome was death within 90 days. They had a cohort of secondary outcomes, which were a uh, number of patients who had more than one serious adverse event uh, defined as uh, cerebral cardiac or limb ischemia or a new AKI, as well as a couple, a few other uh, um, uh, secondary uh, outcomes. The conclusions of the study were that uh, there were no different, there were no significant differences in 90-day mortality or in serious adverse events among patients who received restricted fluid therapy and those who received standard IV therapy. Moving on to seeing what we can take from this, we'll start with you, Dr. McCreary. What do you reckon? Do you, how do you feel about, what do you think about uh, what this evidence guides us? In the emergency department? Uh, yeah. Not at all. Um, yeah. It's really in the title. And um, I think when I was reading it the first time, I just highlighted that in the title, ICU patients with septic shock. So even if it did show a big difference, I don't think it's necessarily going to affect us in our management. Um, but yeah, I think even if if you are in the ICU, I don't think there's a big enough difference in the fluid given, like the cumulative amount is, you know, a liter and a half difference at one point. It's not, it's not massive differences uh, in the fluid volume being given um for it to really have mattered even if it showed a bit of a benefit i don't know it's just doesn't seem particularly helpful to me but the things from my side that i was wanting to see that i didn't was you know how much fluid did they get beforehand what what where were they at in their resuscitation status from the ed and when i'm and on the topic of that only about 40 percent of these patients came from the ed so that even you know a group that's probably not relevant to us and it's only 40 percent of them are even vaguely relevant to us so i'm I'm probably not taking much home from this um i think it, you know from an icu perspective they may be looking at it as it doesn't really matter too much what they do, but the, the there's been general trend over the last load of years anyway that they are going drier anyway. So the, the, you're comparing restrictive fluid to standard, but standard in the ICU is to be pretty restrictive. You know, they get the patient flooded before they come to ICU, then dry them out when they get there. Um, so I think I, I don't really understand why where the question came from for them. We had Prof Andy Udi as well uh, come down from ICU for a journal club on the day, and he said something similar. Mm. Um, Prof Cameron, um, uh, how should we, uh, it, it, how should we structure, let's say, let's say uh, we have somebody who's boarded downstairs, they're downstairs for 12 to 24 hours because there's no beds upstairs. Um, uh, how should we gauge how much fluid we should give them? Well, I think, you know, it gets down to clinical Acumen. Um, That's cool. <laughs> if they're, uh, you know, we just had someone the other night that was about five litres down because they've been lying on their floor for three days. You know, like um, 
they needed five litres of fluid. Um, uh, and you could tell that, uh, you know, looking at their IVC and so forth, it was um, quite obvious that they were down on fluid. Um, so um, there's the clinical part. And then let's say they appear to be more or less uh, fluid balanced when they come in, uh, as far as you can tell, then I think uh, most uh, practical, pragmatic clinicians would give a litre or so of fluid. Uh, and then uh, if that didn't work, uh, they would use an inotrope so, or a vasoconstrictor. So uh, I don't think... Um, I don't... Th- think anyone's going to give just if they think they're euvolemic they're not going to give them more than a couple of liters of fluid these days as Dave said the 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 fashion has changed um and I think it would be hard to get a trial up that said we'll give one guy three liters and the other guy um less than one liter um I don't think that would get up I think the really important thing that you mentioned there is the clinical assessment you just you just shouldn't be and i don't think anybody really is anymore given these things mm. blind um i actually think capillary refill is probably underrated but if you look at the andromeda shock trial where they used it as the main guide versus lactate you know such an easy thing to do by the bedside and i think that's really underappreciated but i really think it doesn't matter what measure you're using as long as it's one you're comfortable with and you can convince yourself oh yeah this patient probably needs a bit of fluid that's the big stopping point is thinking before you before you act or before you prescribe or ideally if you use multiple measures simultaneously yeah like echo cap refill biomarkers for for aki or whatever um uh, vitals for hemodynamic compromise passive um, leg raise passive leg raise lactate and uh, i don't know about urine output because they never have a catheter but <laughs> no, it's just it's just giving it due consideration and making you know you're not going to be right 100% of the time, but we have to make the best clinical educated guess that we can. Uh, but I definitely agree with Peter that um, there's definitely a trend these days, and I know there's studies ongoing at the minute for just earlier use of, of vasopressors mm-hmm. like noradrenaline. Um, and you can do that while you're also fluid resuscitating and you can you know fiddle with it that way. But I think that's that's the direction that we we seem to be heading at the minute. I think the ARISE fluid trial will help us a little bit but again, it's a little bit restricted by, uh, if you'll pardon the pun, by the amount to which the fluid is restricted. It's restrictive in how restrictive it is. Peter wants to restrict it further. <laughs> Paper three. Peripheral vasoactive administration in critically ill children was shock. A single center retrospective cohort study. Um, uh, this uh, was the population was a uh, a uh, pediatric uh, uh, or 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 children in a single quaternary uh, pediatric ICU aged 31 days to 18 years who received adrenaline noradrenaline or dopamine via peripheral or central venous catheters um uh, the uh, the intervention was uh, the administration of uh, of peripheral uh, venous access and the comparator was uh, the administration of uh, vasopressors through central venous access. The outcome was uh, initial uh, uh, was was a likelihood of vasoactive medicines leaking from the uh, um, cannula site. This was a retrospective cohort study. Um, the sample uh, size uh, 
was uh, 231 approximately uh, patients in the peripheral arm and 525 patients in the central uh, venous cannulation arm. The outcomes were uh, were, were measured by uh, one number of extravasation um, events, uh, the dose of vasopressor during the event, and the number of abrupt uh, hypotensive events, um, uh, as well as the number of uh, uh, CVA placements in the peripheral. Um, vasoactive medicines arm. I thought that these measures were appropriate. Um, they were reasonable ways to assess these two cohorts. And the results were that the initial peripheral uh, vasoactive medication uh, administration group, I received them in approximately 30%, whereas the central arm received them in approximately 70% of patients. Um, and the conclusion was that uh, short-term peripheral uh, administration of vasopressors was safe um, uh, for while evaluating the need for central access. Dr. McCreary, do you cannulate, do you begin administration of peripheral vasopressors in patients, or do you usually wait for a central access oh, in, in adults? In patients in general, absolutely use it so often, advocate for it all the time. It is, I think, uh, a game changer. And um, we know that it's, it's safe as long as it's a a good you know a good cannula that you're sure is is well sighted, preferably in a large vessel, preferably proximal, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the main reason I I love it is it's, it just gets rid of a cognitive barrier because you before we started using it, you would often see people going, mm, they might need a bit of Nora, but then I have to put a central line in. I don't really want to put central line. Then they would leave the central line for as long as possible, and then you were really putting the central line in in anger and you you couldn't get it in fast enough and that's when mistakes happen whereas this way the way we practice today is you use a good peripheral cannula you start the norad you see that it's it's worked you make the decision that they need ongoing definitive access you put in a, a cvc while the patient's got a lovely map and you can do it clean tidy calm makes so much sense to me it just anything that gets rid of this cognitive barrier that stops us using a drug that we're pretty sure helps um, I have to say, I don't look after very many critically ill kids. We do see some kids in some of our sites and in other hospitals I work in. Um, and I've worked previously in retrieval services where we would look after sick kids. Um, so I would, you know, have used it, would use it, but um, it's not certainly my area of expertise at the minute. The use of it in kids, it seems to be, uh, we don't have a lot of literature for it in the adults either, but there's there's no like trials that have shown benefit and kids are slightly different to adults so that's my that was my only question in the journal club on the day obviously you would need a different sort of prospective trial to be able to show that there's actually a benefit in using them um peripherally in kids but i don't see physiologically why there why there would be any difference uh, and this is just another paper that shows that it's probably a safe thing to do if you're sensible about it Next question goes to Prof. Cameron. I finally found my numbers uh, from the four screens that were open in front of me. Well, they had four extravasation events in the 231 patients, um, among whom uh, uh, peripheral vasoactive medicines were administered. Are you comfortable with four out of 230? Do you reckon that's... Uh... Well, there were four out of 230, but, the, but none of them required um, mm. any plastic surgery or any other... Uh, uh, dastardly thing. So they were basically four harmless, in inverted commas, extravasations. Uh, and, you know, you can do 230 without any significant complications. 
then that would be reassuring to me. Um, my only concern methodologically is that um, they didn't include those patients who didn't go to ICU. So if they died or um, went to the ward, got better and went to the ward or something, they obviously weren't included. Um, I don't know and we don't know what numbers they were or whether there are any problems with those. Um, and as you've mentioned, the only, so in terms of safety on the face of it, it looks pretty good because um, the only thing I'd be worried about is extravasation. Uh, in terms of effectiveness, as uh, Dave alluded to, we don't know whether putting it in peripherally works as well as putting it in centrally. But from other studies uh, and limited data, it appears that it probably does. This study doesn't answer that question and wasn't designed to answer that question. Of the of the 230 patients who received peripheral vasoactive medicines, half of them did not require a central line in the end. Yes. Um, and so potentially that may be the difference that you're alluding to in the sense that if we have four out of 230 that have suffered an adverse event, but it's a minor adverse event, um, uh, half of them would have been saved a, a, a fairly invasive intervention, um, which is probably associated with more than, than, than uh, a 4%. Uh, yeah. But it's important to recognize that just because they didn't go on to get a central line doesn't mean that the peripheral access noradrenaline or adrenaline was the reason that they didn't get ah. a central line. Because it's a retrospective study. You've no idea where an association or a causation is. So just That's bear that point. in mind when you're looking at it. That's a good point. Um, uh, is is the reason why the administration of peripheral uh, um, pressors or inotropes um, might, may or may not be effective? Is that is the thought that uh, even if it is in the vein, um, uh, that uh, its its uh, delivery to the central circulation is is probably slower, if happening at all? Yeah, I mean, yeah. it may get metabolized. It may uh, distribute. You know, um, it, I mean. Anecdotally, it appears to work quite well, uh, but this I think study, at lower yeah. doses, I think once yeah. you get to the higher doses, I do start to wonder because it may be peripherally vasoconstricting itself out of the central circulation, and you you know so and that's where it's one of those reasons you get a central line in once your doses are getting really high and you're not winning. And I think mm. this is with this particular study, it it should be realised what it is. I mean, it was a short period. Uh, that they were using it for, uh, probably low doses, um, and uh, you know, as we as we said, there may be some cases that were missed. So um, I wouldn't. I mean, I, I think it's reassuring uh, for us that if we want to uh, put a start peripherally while we're getting into ICU or something, that's probably going to be fine. Um, but it shouldn't be. To replace central venous um, uh, uh, administration of, of um, vasoconstrictors or ultra long uh, peripheral cannulation. Yeah, I have to say I do like this. I do think it adds to the body of evidence. Uh, I would really have liked them to have included all those patients, like all patients in the ED that had noradrenaline or adrenaline or dopamine. Um, um, given to them like i did that's my biggest bugbear with this is that they just lost such a big 
batch of patients that would have been really interesting. And aside from that, it really has, it's, it's added a bit to the evidence, which is, you know, admirable. If I was uh, in a regional hospital or a rural hospital and were about to transport a patient to a tertiary uh, uh, PICU um, and we had a 22 gauge, a yellow, uh, um, sorry, a, a 24 gauge, a yellow cannula, um, uh, I guess I, if I, I guess I guess the question is really a moot question because if the patient needs vasopressors, give them vasopressors. If they don't need vasopressors, um, don't give them vasopressors. And if they need vasopressors and you have a 24 gauge in, get a better site and you can start it in the 24 until you get a better it, site. Is that yeah, if if you can. I mean, I think some of these kids had it in their hand and and um, you know, they didn't necessarily have any ill effects from that. I think there was one comment in the the room on the Day of Journal Club where they're saying, you know, it is quite reassuring that these very small cannulas were used and it hasn't caused any um ill effect um but i would be very cautious at applying that to the adult population because a small cannula in a small person is very different to a small cannula in a big person and if we can only get a super small cannula in an adult there's usually other factors that have meant that is the issue and the cannula is going to be really very short relative to the patient so it's just being careful about application of this to other populations yeah, because unless it the other thing that came up in the discussion was only um, was only the ones in the hand that caused problems. Um, mm. So again, it's common sense, but uh, if possible, put it into a, a bigger vein further up. And the other thing I thought was quite interesting: um, uh, Christina, the pharmacist, said she can't remember the last time she was asked for fentolamine. Um, mm. So clearly, even though our practice is to uh, use to start. Um, uh, vasoconstrictors uh, peripherally, it, it's very rare for it to extravasate. Uh, yeah. So I think that's reassuring. And if you are going to start using it in your department, if you don't do it already, it's just simple things like checking the cannula before you start using it for that, really asking yourself, is it the best cannula we've got for this patient? And then regularly checking it to make sure that it hasn't. And one of the interesting things that, did they mention it in the study? Or was it someone in the, in the room said at the time, having a decent um, IV fluid flow go through the, the line at the same time, because you're far more likely to spot an extra visation if you've got 100 litres of saline sitting in the arm, rather than the slow accumulation of noradrenaline sitting in the arm. So I thought that was a really good point. It is a good point. If you're giving crystalloids, um, give them give them through the same cannula if they're compatible. Mm. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you to both our guests today. Uh, we'll see you all next time. <laughs>